a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 89 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. They can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herlman. And with me, like Sebulba to every pod race in Star Wars, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. How's it going? In a rhetorical question sort of way, because this is a podcast, so unless you talk to your computer, we have no idea how to have you answer that question. Unless you send us an email saying, I'm fine. Very delayed. How are how were you two weeks ago when we recorded this? Now try to remember. <laughs> you try to remember is about right. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Dark Horse Comics' Star Wars Emissaries to Malastar by Tim Turman. Consider this your spoiler warning Beyonders and Sentience of all ages, because here we go. But before we get too spoilerific, we're going to do a quick uh, spoiler-free rundown for you. We will give you the uh, classic... Uh, Tarkin spoiler jump off before we get too deep. So, with that, Nathan? Wow, this is an interesting little tale. I had not read this since it was originally released, and when it came out, I was reading it as individual issues. So, just to kind of clear things up to begin with here, you can find this in the pages of the omnibus entitled Emissaries and Assassins, which is also where we found Outlander in a recent episode. You can also find it in its own trade paperback, the Emissaries to Malastare trade paperback from what we now call Republic. It is also issues 13 through 18 of the series we know generally as Republic, which they claim is also Dark Times, which at the time was simply Star Wars, the ongoing series from Dark Horse Comics. Can't really call it the Star Wars ongoing series now because it's not ongoing anymore. Uh, they call it Star Wars Volume 1 now uh, in relation to the current one. Basically what you got here is a six-part story, and I use the term loosely, uh, that focuses down on a mission to send six Jedi Council members, that's a lot, uh, on a diplomatic mission to Malastare to deal with the conflict between the Lanix, that's Evan Peel's race, and the Red Iaro pirates, which are ones that he has clashed with before, who are sort of the rebellious members of that race. And in the process of all of this, they wind up integrating with the story with this year's uh, major pod race on the pod racing circuit, which includes Sebulba and some of the other pod races that we see from the Phantom Menace. And by the end of it, the action has shifted to Nar Shadda for what feels like an almost completely unrelated story. And we get a brief appearance of Quinlan Voss and Vilmar Garak, uh, Vil, to set up the future stories of this series. 
if there was one thing to say about this six issue arc, I would say that the uh, the word that best describes it is uh, crap. Outright. What the hell are they doing? They had no idea where this series was going. Uh, this six <laughs> issues shows basically that they've created characters that they want to use for this, right? Uh, Dark Woman, Quinlan Boss, Vil. Now, granted, of course, Quinlan Boss appears in The Phantom Menace, but it's, hey, look, that's a cool look for a character. Let's make a character around that and make it that character from The Phantom Menace. And at this point, they have no idea what they're doing. They're ringing Asherod Het, of course, but otherwise, it's basically cameo central. For characters from episode one, they even talk about in the letters columns how, you know, Lucas has been very specific as to which characters they can and cannot develop from episode one as episode two is in production. So they bring in a lot of these back characters, but they can't do a whole lot super dynamic with them because you never know what's going to happen for episode two at that point. And uh, really the only thing that this that this series stands out for to me is the fact that there is a cool scene in which... Well before the Clone Wars, Asherod Het, as a new Padawan having been brought to the temple, briefly gets to have a conversation with also new Padawan Anakin Skywalker, both being from Tatooine and having that in common. But that was something, according to the letters page, that Tim Truman wrote and expected Lucasfilm to quash, to tell them to take it out. But they didn't. So one of the most memorable moments of this, just because it manages to somehow tie into other stuff without just being cameo fodder, um was something that wasn't even meant to be in the final issue because they never thought it would pass through Lucasfilm. This is just one of these these tales that doesn't work for me. you got four issues of one story, two issues basically of another. another. They dump it together and claim that it's one. They don't even use the same artist for both parts of it. Um, you've got artist uh, Tom Lyle for the first four, and then John Nado, mainly known from the X-Wing comics, showing up for the last two. This is just amateur hour in a lot of ways. Fluff and filler. That, that's that's how I'm gonna word it. it. It very much is fluff and filler. You know the uh, well, we got a lot of things down the road, so let's kind of seed it in with the story now, kind of give it a little one shot aspect to it, and kind of infuse it with goodies that we'll give them later. I I really think the only redeeming factor about this arc is the fact that if you're reading the Star Wars Volume 1 line or Star Wars Republic as they later retconned it into being or now Dark Times as it is, but if you're going to follow that line all the way through, then this is this is one of those ones that it's got some stuff that's going to seed in later that you will enjoy, but that's it. That's really all that's going on for it. You know, the aspect of they didn't know what was going on with Lucasfilm is very apparent. I mean, just look at the lightsaber colors alone. I mean, you know, you got all sorts of weird action going on with red lightsabers and blue lightsabers and yellow and it's like okay well we obviously you know didn't get much of lucas for permission it always wondered at this stage of the game how much the involvement from lucas with what these guys were doing was because it definitely feels like there was zero that they were just like getting the the scraps of the of the star wars universe <laughs> like here you go Here's a character that we don't plan to do anything with. I mean, you, you know, look at the, the the few arcs before this, you know, Outlander and uh, Prelude to Rebellion and stuff. And, I mean, you know, Kai Adamundi, what, what the heck did they do with him? Nothing. He dies on Megiddo and that's it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, come on. They, they at least give him a backstory somewhat. And, and that, I guess, is the only redeeming factor here is that you do have some backstories, but do they really mesh well with what Lucas gave us? And that that's, for me, that's the weirdest thing because... 
I like you. I read this when it came out in trade. That's how I have it is the trade paperback, and I haven't touched it again since. So going back over it, I'm like, wow, this really doesn't quite jive with the prequels anymore. I mean, the yeah. way they talk and things like that. You know, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, Frito-Lay had this whole thing going. I think it was Frito-Lay that had um, all these new variants of types of potato chip a while back. And they would have these chips out in different oh, yeah. test markets and see which one was going to be the one that would stay around. And I missed one that for some reason sounded good because, you know, I'm in the South and you hear about this all the time. And I've never actually had a meal of it, but chicken and waffles. There's, yeah. a, there's a flavor of chips oh, there God, called chicken bad. and waffles. Yeah. And I thought, hey, that sounds good. Maybe it'd be kind of syrupy kind of taste. I mean, uh, surely it'll taste <laughs> a little bit different. Maybe it'll be like baked or something so they're not quite as greasy. I don't know what I was expecting, but I missed it the first time around. And I was so annoyed with myself. And sure enough, a few months later, I run into it at the store, and I'm, I've got this nostalgia like, ooh, ooh, I finally got it. I'm finally going to get to experience something that either I don't remember from the past, in this case of this issue, or one that I missed the first time around. Wow, this is going to be cool. Um, I don't know what to expect, but this should be cool. And after your first couple of bites, you're like, oh my god, I'm going to vomit. Uh, just, <laughs> it is so just, I don't know. I, I have, I guess, rose-colored glasses when it comes to the Republic comic series because of how good it got later. But man, these early issues, they are just, I don't want to say a train wreck. It's not that bad. But there were times when this six-issue arc was making me long for dark times. And that says a lot because I loathe that series. Um, this just did absolutely nothing for me other than to basically, you know, let me create a checklist off to the side, like, yep, that character was used. Yep, that character was used. Oh, look, here's that character from The Phantom Menace. It was basically as if somebody sat down with a visual guide to Episode 1 and had a bet going to see how many cameos they could fit into one, either in terms of characters who actually show up or characters that are mentioned, like, say, Aura Singh, who winds up being mentioned because of the previous arc but doesn't show up uh, herself. It's just quite the 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 mess of a tale here or tales as i tend to refer to it because this really doesn't feel like one coherent storyline no tales is is a good way of putting it i mean that that's kind of what you're getting here you get little tidbits of backstories um one one we get is mace windu that's the pretty much the whole second half of the story or and it doesn't even feel like a half kind of like more like the last one-fourth of the story switches and kind of puts him as the focus but you get kind of what you're going to get from shatterpoint uh, you know, they kind of give you like little tidbits of, of stuff that are big factors in that book, you know, with how his people work and how the uh, herding and all that goes and their their relationship with the force and the act dogs, things like that. Um, Depa Bilba, uh, uh, Bilaba, she shows up and, and, you know, she's in there. Little things like that. You know, you get you get to see uh, Poe Kloon talking, which. You know, that kind of struck me because as I was looking at his speech, you know, it's written in a different text to kind of give you an idea that his voice is very different, I guess, and or is speaking through the reverberator, rebreather. Uh, but the speech kind of lined up with what we get from him talking in the Clone Wars, the animated series, which I thought that was kind of ironic because, like, I really doubt that anyone went back to these early comics to be like, well, how exactly did Poe Kloon talk, you know? But yet they managed to keep his character kind of continuity-wise later. But other characters, not so much. Well, speaking of Plo Koon, i got to ask, because I've got this in the original six issues. 
do they fix the way that they do the lettering on his words to make it look like normal? Or are they all screwed up looking in the trade paperback? Because in these versions, basically they don't connect the lines. Like if you've got an A, they won't connect the lines at the top or where the, the crossbar connects. It's basically the lines with holes in them, and it's really freaking hard to read. And yeah, that's like for someone stencil. with decent eyes. Yeah, it's, it's stenciled out. Yeah, they're, they're still like that, although uh, I'm looking at one where he says a simple roof, sleeping mats, and the means to prepare our own meals would be most appreciated. Uh, some of the A's touch, some of them don't. So, yeah, it's it looks like it's still the same. Um, yeah, it's like when they when – they, uh, I, I remember the old Transformers comic from Marvel that they recently relaunched. It's Regeneration 1 where the humans would have the rounded text boxes and the Transformers would have ones that are more like squares. It's like they're trying to do that type of thing except they're doing it with – the lettering itself, and the only one who gets that type of changed lettering is Plo Koon, only for it to wind up being very difficult to read and really off-putting, to be honest with you. Thank goodness they got rid of that for later appearances of the character. Well, and his, his speech bubble has also got the extra layer of blue around it, and it's all jagged. Like, you know, you kind of assume, like, okay, that's got to be, like, kind of harsh on the ear or something, but... That's why I think in that aspect, the Clone Wars TV show did a pretty good job when it came to his voice because it's that stood the test of time. Unlike Mace Windu here, who it's like, uh, we require little in the way of sentient comforts. I'm like, I, I keep trying to listen to it with uh, Samuel L. Jackson's voice, but it's just not quite lining up. <laughs> We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. All right, so let's move into the spoiler discussion here uh, and go issue for issue, I suppose. Um, we start off, issue number one begins with Asherod Het having just been brought to the Jedi Temple on Coruscant to begin his Jedi training as Padawan to Ki Adi Mundi. Um, he is tested by the Dark Woman who, of course, uh, previously appeared in the last arc. They're really playing up the character here. Um, she looks like she's gained a few pounds. She, she, her face looks kind of Paula Deen-esque in this. Um, she basically... Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That she, is so true. Well, she does. Um, <laughs> I never thought I'm just looking at it. Kill me now, no one will question it. It's totally like, is Paula Deen angry right yeah, there? Yeah. <laughs> the dark woman contract. cooks with a lot of butter. Um... So Dark Woman tries to basically goad him into anger as a way of testing him, except it feels by the end as though he's tested her more and she's leaning toward the dark side because they do this funky thing with her word balloons and make it all jagged as if she's going towards the dark side. Um, yeah, she, yeah, I want to talk about that real fast because going back on this reread, I kind of was getting the feeling like this may have been the character that they later retcon Vergere into, like... This could have been that one that was working with Palpatine. That the way her text box shifted, I got that very, you know, more than just dark, you know, and even even uh, Peel himself, you know, unorthodox. The ways of her teachings are brutal and disturbing. No wonder she is called the Dark Woman behind her back. And I'm like, um, all comic, the last few comics, they've been saying it to her to her face. Why are you such a weenie? Yeah, it makes her an interesting little uh, interchange between the two. I mean, it's. It's interesting to see how controlled Asherad actually is, and the fact that when asked why he didn't strike, why he was holding back, he says, hey, you're not my enemy. I recognize that you're not my enemy, and then she punches him in the gut to prove that anyone could be. But interesting that he has a good degree of self-control, although as we go along in this arc, 
it seems as though he doesn't have nearly as much self-control in some cases when they're outside of the Jedi Temple. Um, she makes sure. her exit, or apparent exit, by somehow, like, vanishing in a purple sparkly mist or something? Um... At which oh, point I'd we... say it's a miss because when she does it the second time, she does it in the center of the room. Like this time, she looks like she's walking through a wall. But the next time she does it, like there's still like 20, 30 feet from the door and she just disappears in the middle of the room. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. Evan Peel says, uh, as we see, she is very much alive and her force powers are strong. I guess I don't recall that being a force power. I mean, I guess a vampire could do it, perhaps, to slip under your door. Um, and, of course, they're referring to her as the one sometimes called the Dark Woman, still not using her actual name, saying Dark Woman as if it should be a shock to her to hear it, um, as if somehow she doesn't hear it as much outside of there, but, heck, everybody calls her that. We saw that in the last arc. She reemerges in enough... She's like, she's like from the boondogs. No, I'm a pimp named Slickback. <laughs> she reemerges long enough to basically talk to Kiati Mundi about how, you know, ties are being broken, the Sith are out there, um, to ask about Aura Singh because he ran into her in the last issue. You know, we see this building up as an ongoing storyline, the whole thing about Dark Woman training Aura Singh, what may have happened to her, you know, building up that mystery around the character. And then we get to the actual point of this arc, or what's supposed to be the point of this arc, where the Jedi Council, which at this point has uh, Yaddle, Mace Windu, Yoda, Saisi Tin, Kiani Mundi, Adi Gallia, Opo Rancisis, uh, who is somehow standing up as normal, uh, even Peel, Eeth, Koth, Yariel Poof, Plo Koon, and Depa Bilaba are talking about this mission that they need to undertake as emissaries to Malastare. The Lanik race, that's Evan Peel's race, and the Rediaro pilots, the ones that he focused on uh, at one point in his Jedi missions to try to take them down, uh, they are trying to come to terms of peace, supposedly, on Malastare with the help of the Grand Protectorate. Malastare is the home of the Dugs, uh, but they are controlled at this point by the Grand, and the Grand Protector is what you call that government there. Um, at this point, they're not really going away from, you know, we shouldn't send you if you've got an attachment to it. It's more of a, if you've got an attachment to the situation, you could be an expert. So they want even Peel to go, because that's where his scar came from, was fighting the Red Yaro. And then Depa Bilaba, Depa Bilaba is going to go as well, because, see, her parents were these Corellian. I don't know how they make it Corellian unless that's just where she happened to have lived, because they've gone through and said that she's not normal human. Um, but uh, her parents were these Corellian diplomats, and at one point when the Red Yaro struck, and on that same mission where he got the scar, I believe, uh, the diplomats were targeted for assassination by the pirates, and Evan Peel saved the day. And this means that because of that family connection, Depa Bilaba feels like she owes a debt to Evan Peel so that she can somehow serve his people at some point because he managed to save her, uh, her parents. Very much not doing the whole attachment is forbidden thing because episode two hadn't come around yet. So we've got all these different things giving these characters personal connections. Even Mace Windu will find a personal connection by the end of this storyline. They decide that six Jedi Masters will go. They make up their strike team, and then the fellowship. That's what this yeah. reminds me of. Because when, when even he's like, the ways of my people are strange and primitive. You will need me on Malastare. It's like, and my bow. <laughs> Before they end the issue, though, we've got two scenes that are actually somewhat more of interest than pretty much the entire rest of the issue has been. 
one for its retcon potential, and the other because it is that scene in which we see uh, Asherod Het briefly talk to Anakin Skywalker. Granted, this is something they expected to be removed, but it's kind of neat to see a very, very, very young Anakin with the Padawan braid and everything at this point, because we don't see a lot of Anakin and in Padawan training this close to the Phantom Menace. Most of the stuff we see with him is a little bit later as we get into things like Jedi Quest and such. But I want to focus in on the scene right before that. The Concordance of Fealty. This whole idea that Jedi can hand each other's lightsaber over, like trade lightsabers as a sign of trust, um, so the other person keeps it safe as a way of honoring you and... At some point, once that is over with, you have another version of the ceremony in which you trade the lightsabers back. And in this case, Mace Windu has been carrying the lightsaber of Eeth Koth. Eeth Koth has used Mace Windu's, and now here they are trading them back. Uh, two things with this. One, this forms the basis of the way that they later managed to retcon the idea in The Long Hunt and Duel of Eagles, which was a storyline from the old Marvel days, um, of why it is that in some cases we're told that Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker fought beside each other based on information simply stemming from A New Hope without the information from The Empire Strikes Back that Vader and Anakin are essentially the same character. Uh, uh, they said that Halagad Ventor, the character designed around Abel Pena, swamped lightsabers at one point with Anakin, so the looks um, made that make sense, the look of the lightsabers here. But in this case, this retcon in this issue is designed specifically and solely around the idea that in the toy line, Mace Windu's preview figure came with the lightsaber that doesn't resemble the one he actually has in Episode 1. That, you know, forget about the fact that, you know, it, we don't see him ignite it in Episode 1, so we don't know what color it is yet. But we've got a lightsaber with him in that little preview action figure package. There was that preview, there was a stap with the Battle Droid preview, and there was a preview little micro-machine-looking thing with the Naboo playset. Had all three at the time. And... Because the hilt on the toy didn't match the movie, they wanted to make sure to retcon it to explain away why that is the case. And this is it. In the toy, it's Ethcoth's, not Mace's. Now Mace is getting it back. Or it was, or sorry, excuse me, I guess it was the other way around. The one that's on the toy is his, and the one that's in the movie was Ethcoth's. Um, so I say it's, it's a confusing situation, made all the more confusing by the fact that they don't keep the designs of them consistent after doing this whole concordance of fealty thing. But it struck me that it's very interesting. They would use up one, two, two entire pages, okay, of a comic, which is about 10% of the comic, give or take, to do this concordance of fealty only with the point of retconning something dealing with a toy. Ah, Lucas licensees. Back in the days where when it came to continuity, they actually gave a sh. Well, and then, of course, they forgot to change the color of the blade because the blade then stays blue. I'm like, why didn't they do this at the end of the comic? Like, that was the part that confused well, me. Yeah, but, but, they don't, but they don't know he has a purple one yet, do they? That wasn't decided well, until episode two, was it? You're right. Because, yeah, he didn't ignite the blade. I mean, <laughs> just like one of those things like, really? Oh, come on, George. Share the secret. Was, was keeping a purple lightsaber that hard? I mean, look throughout this comic. There were colors all over the place. It wasn't that big of a secret, George. <laughs> and at one point, I mean, doesn't... Wasn't it the Dark Woman who has a purple lightsaber? Yeah, she does. Uh, you know, Het's got a red one. Uh, Adi Gala's got a red one. Uh, Depa's got a red one. I mean, it's like, whoa! Uh, let's see, uh, 
Pokloon, he's got his yellow one. Um, there were a couple others in there, though, too. But, yeah, there were colors uh, all up the wazoo. So then we move into issue number two, and we're on Malastare. Why Malastare? Because, of course, you got to use it. It was mentioned in The Phantom Menace. And we have a pod race going on, tying into uh, the episode one racer stuff and eventually racer's revenge that was actually on purpose here um we oh see... is that why they wasted so many pages with the pod race i was like why in the hell are we like this could have been condensed to two pages it went on for like seven well, i don't think they were actually designing it to cross over with the game per se but they did go through and they talk about it in the letters page how they the design of the track and, and the uh, racing area on malastare was lifted from the game on purpose um, the first thing we see, though, should be a shock to many, and that is uh, Anakin's pod racer repainted. Uh, we will eventually find in the Pod Racing Tales Online comic that uh, before leaving Tatooine, Qui-Gon Jinn sold Anakin's pod racer to Sebulba because he wanted the one that beat him, and here he is using it recolored. Um, they don't really draw heavy attention to it, but you'll recognize it when you see the pod racer throughout this entire bit. So the entire first part is cameos of pod racers all over the place. Uh, you have Wan Sandage there, you have Aldar Beto, uh, supposed to be trying to kill Sebulba, we have Elon Mack, it's just, uh, you even have the same announcers, the same two-headed Foden B announcer characters, and it takes the bulk of the first half of this comic. The whole idea is that this is supposed to be the event that is taking up all the news coverage, so that when the plot of and the scheming of the villains in this story takes place, it'll at least to begin with be be sort of hidden by the news about the pod race. And then when they want it in the news, they can make it happen where the pod race cameras are so that it does wind up on the news as part of that coverage. Uh, essentially media manipulation. But they spend a good half of this issue on nothing but the pod race. And frankly... It doesn't really work. The pod race looks great on film. It looks, or it plays out okay when it's in prose form, like in the Dangerous Games, the, the Jedi Quest story. But to me, when it's in comic book form, it doesn't really work as well because you don't get the, the dynamic movement to it. And no matter how well you have the play-by-play -play describing what's happening, it doesn't match how a prose third-person story is able to use narration to give more detail. It's just, it does not work for me. No, it, it, that felt like the biggest waste. Uh, when you got to that point, it was just like, man, they could have really just chalked this up. They could have done almost everything in the last stretch of the race. I mean, you see that there's assassins trying to kill Sebulba. Sebulba's in the middle of it. And, you know, then you get the weird, weird, very traumatic scene where Sebulba gets done, he wins, and... I believe it's an abyssin is lifting him up by his butt cheeks. I'm like, um, do we have to draw it like that? Cause that just looks wrong in so many ways. <laughs> and speaking of wrong, I, I'm, I don't know about you, Nathan, but I am not a fan of the grand. Uh, the more I see them, the more I just, uh, there's something reptilian and cow like about them that just sets me off. <laughs> I'm like, no villain villainous. Yeah. They look kind of, Dumb. Although I gotta, I gotta wonder if with Sebulba, because of the way that they work, that his butt cheeks might be, I don't know, higher or something. Maybe that's kind of like holding him up by his, uh, his shoulders. Although he does have some weird kind of like polka dotty underwear on, so I don't know. Maybe his shoulders are right next to his crotch or 
something. Like, just don't I eat don't the grapes, Abyssin. Don't eat the grapes. Oh. All right. So we meet uh, the villains of the piece, or apparently. We have Axmo, who, of course, is the senator because, hey, he shows up in the movie. He's got to show up here. And then we have with him uh, Micture Phoenix Zug, which is a Red Yarrow pilot, uh, Atlantic himself. Uh, we find that the uh, the the uh, Dugs are basically servants to the Grand at this point, and we meet a fib, what? A fib uh, priest who is also with them. Um, and I thought that was interesting that they were the Inquisitors. That the fib priests were also known as Inquisitors. I'm like, oh, was that was that an automatic retcon? Is that something they ran with later? I was like, oh, I was not aware of that. I just like the fact that they call them the fib. Uh, it's kind of one of those ways of saying, yeah, your beliefs aren't true. You're the fib. You're fibbers. <laughs> um, but we find out that uh, the Jedi are on their way, that they are all working on some kind of hideous plot because they're just kind of out in the open chatting about their hideous plot uh, before the Jedi finally arrive. The Jedi team at this point consists of uh, Evan Peel, Yaddle, Mace Windu, Ki-Adi Mundi, Plo Koon, Depa Bilaba, and because Ki-Adi Mundi is there... Asherod Het. So it's six members of the Jedi Council plus Asherod. And having finally arrived, we really don't get a whole lot of action uh, early on in this. You know, they meet, they get taken to places where they're supposed to go to, you know, to, to have their accommodations and whatnot. And the Jedi managed to notice a couple of henchmen from the Red Yara and from the Fib who are there to attack the Jedi. And rather than killing them, which is apparently their mission, because, you know, sending two guys, one with a blaster rifle and one with a blaster, is certainly a good way to kill seven freaking Jedi, six of which are on the Jedi Council, because that's always a great plan. What could possibly go wrong? Um, they wind up being defeated and retreating uh, until finally being executed by the, the, the leaders of this whole conspiracy. And it basically just provides by the end of the issue to the Jedi the sense that, oh, hey, it's obvious that we must be very careful from now on, my friends. There's more to these, inve uh, these negotiations than meets the eye. I sense great danger here. <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of one of those waste of an issue kind of things. I mean, the last half of the issue could have been compressed into something significantly smaller. And the first half of the issue really didn't need to be there. Uh, issue two, definitely a... Wop, unless you really, really, really like pod racing. Well, it seems like, you know, from Dark Horse's standpoint, the only thing they can do is just use council members. I mean, that's, I think, the thing that bothers me the most. It's like, well, we're going to have a mission, so how many council members are we going to take with us today? It's like, can't you let somebody else do a mission? I mean, I like this het guy. Why can't he do more stuff? Bring in someone else. I mean, that, that, to me, is the biggest, I don't know, crime here is that you know they created all these potential moments where things aren't going to line up later you know i mean that that's always been my issue when it comes to the the main continuity and the three-way which is books comics and games and then adding in the films it's like they never have quite lined up as well as they should and that's always been the film's fault well in this case it's like you guys should have backed off a little i mean lucas had a list of characters but yet if, I find it strange that most of the council was not on this list of characters. Like, really? Like, Lucas had a lot of plans for him later in the Clone Wars. 
Yeah, it, remind, it makes me think of the uh, the licensing folks sitting behind the scenes being like Cartman in South Park. They're like, I do what I want. Uh, it just really <laughs> doesn't quite work. We move into the third issue, though, and I must say one of the first things we see in the third issue really kind of disturbed me a little bit. Um, they're still on Malastare. Um, they're still talking about their mission. They will talk and talk and talk and talk about the mission. But we get to about the third story page, and a Gamorrean has, for no apparent reason, thumped Asherad Het with uh, his pike. And in order to calm them down so a fight doesn't ensue, Yaddle uses a mind trick on the weak-willed, dumb Gamorians. But she starts out with it very simple. Stand aside, Padawan Het. Talk to these guards. Yaddle will. Okay, no harm, no foul. But the first line used as she's trying to basically get them to be docile is, So brave, these handsome Gamorians. So big you are. So strong. And I'm just thinking about Yaddle and Gamorian. And I don't want those images in my <laughs> head. Was it green attracts green or something? Yeah. <laughs> He's my kind of ugly he is. <laughs> Hit on him, I shall. <laughs> Pull my hair, you will. No! Oh, God. just it, it's, it's a weird, weird scene. Um... And we get a lot of exposition about how horrible it is that the Dugs are being controlled by the Gran and how Plo Koon is someone who apparently is so uh, above it all in terms of his uh, ability to see past the surface that he can see the beauty at the same time seeing the oppression and yada, yada, yada. Finally, by issue three, we get to the negotiations that are supposed to be the heart of this story where we meet the Lannic Prince, Ricardo... Now, that's R apostrophe C-A-R-D-O, because this is Star Wars. You can't have it just be Ricardo. Got to replace an I with an apostrophe. That or they just left off the bottom of the I. Um, his name is Ricardo, because I think that's the only way you can say it. Ricardo Sulfi or Souffle, like Souffle, apparently. The Ninth. So, yes, there have been eight others with that ridiculous name in the Lannick royal family. This guy is... Pretty much a punk. Um, he's just not a good guy. It's a he's the prince who's been sent as the new leader, who's supposed to be negotiating this truce between Atlantic and the Red Yarrow, and he basically is a disagreeable guy. He doesn't want to be there. He's looking for excuses to gripe. I mean, he's pretty much a piece of crap. And we'll find later <laughs> that uh, they don't even believe that his own people would want to see him back. They would probably pay the pirates to keep him away. Um, we wind up finding that Hutar Zash, uh, an older Lannick, uh, who is an advisor to the prince, is actually someone that Evan Peel knows from back in the day, which is kind of neat to see that personal connection. Again, kind of odd, looking at it these days with the whole attachment thing, to see that personal connection. But the negotiations really don't go anywhere. Um, it's just a chance to really meet all the different characters who are going to be involved. And, of course, then the scene has to shift back to the pod races. And we're back to the freaking next round of the pod races, Sebulba versus the others. Um, an interesting eclectic mix here. We have Sebulba. We have uh, Aldar Bido. We have uh, Timto Pegalis. We have Mahonic. We have Juan Sandage, Elan Mack, uh, all back from episode one. But then we also have Durundo and Wasser Bearer, uh, along with another new pod racer, uh, Danko Verimuch, as in Danko, as in Danka, as in thank you, in German, Verimuch. That's the 
character's name. Well, you're uh, welcome, Phil. <laughs> as they begin their pod race, uh, negotiations are continuing. Maybe they need some aggressive negotiations. Someone needs to bust out a lightsaber or something. Um, they make it look as though it is the Rediaro who are the ones being all, you know, uh, reasonable and the, the Lannick government being the one that is not. And frankly, given the prince's attitude, that's pretty much accurate. All to get us, finally, to the action of the issue, which only takes up the last few pages. We have uh, the, the Jedi accepting an offer from Hutar, uh, Evan Peel's old friend, basically to use their um, little transports, kind of like those cabs that we see in the reinserted footage in The Phantom Menace on Coruscant, um, that uh, has the, the back seat and the front seat, and they kind of look like uh, upside-down curling things. Uh, curling is in the sport, not curling is in the hair. And as they're flying, sure enough, turns out that Hutar is working with the Red Iaro. Um, and he and his ally, who are supposed to be piloting the thing, turn on Depa and Evan and Mace and are basically suicide bombers. They're planning on blowing themselves up as, along with blowing up the cab, except Evan just slices the thing in half. So the front part goes flying and explodes with them in it. The other part, it has it's just falling at this point, so they have to jump free. And where do they land but to fall and grab the wire, or whatever it is, that connects Sebulba's, a.k.a. Anakin's pod racer cockpit, to one of his engines. And we end the issue with the pod racer zipping along and them hanging on, essentially, for dear life. I gotta say... It's a weird way to end it, kind of a neat action sequence, so I'm not sure that would be the cliffhanger I would have personally ended on. But it's another of these issues that feels like it's chock full of nothing. And then it's like, oh yeah, crap, we gotta move the plot along. Splat. Here's the quick bit of the plot that we need to add in here. Yeah, and of course, you know, the terrorists do the classic uh, villain problem here. I mean, you've got surprise on your side, and you're wearing the bomb. Why not just hit the button? No, let's turn around. We're out, terrorists! We're gonna get you! Like... Okay, yeah, that was smart. Uh, this made me think of, um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show or not, there's a group uh, who does geek parody music, uh, geek comedy music called Tripod. And they've got a song called Suicide Bomber. And it, it, I, just, I couldn't read this without in the back of my head hearing their song where the whole line is basically, aren't you the suicide bomber who blew up the bus last year? And the whole song is about how, um, think it through. Um, if I'm the suicide bomber that blew up the bus last year, um, hello? Should I be alive? What? <laughs> um, it just, it, it really kind of kicked me out. I mean, I know at the time it was probably like, holy crap, especially, I mean, I want to think about what this means to us today. This is one of those interesting points of this, not a great point, but an interesting point looking at this. This was written back at the end of 99 going into about the middle of 2000, Okay. At this point, what is on the news every single day? Suicide bombings and other bombings in Israel and Palestine. Okay, um, that if you don't remember before 9/11, that was what you were seeing on the news constantly. If you watched the news networks, it was that and the 2000 election, pretty much as wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And in in the in our way of looking at it now, we look back and say, "Whoa, suicide bombing! That's terrorism straight up." Because you know the Rediaro are terrorists. Because we've had all that experience after 9-11 with terrorism really being on everybody's radar. I wonder how much it would have been on most people's radar, though, in 99-2000, unless you watched a lot of uh, national 
news coverage on things like Fox News, MSNBC, to see what was going on there. I think back then it would have felt very novel and very unusual to see the suicide bomber type thing going on here uh, to many American readers. Whereas after that, it feels like something that's sort of lifted from, you know, modern day concerns that Americans tend to have on a daily basis. Well, then, you know, when these guys do the blowing up, Yaddle ignites her lightsaber, and that's when we see she's got the orange color. Hers like an orangish red. Poe Clune's got the yellow. But that gets back to that question, you know. I mean, like, Lucas knew certain characters were going to be avoided. Why wouldn't he say, hey, uh, the Jedi are only going to have two lightsaber colors? And granted, movie-wise, that's what he did. And then he slips in Maces with the purple later. But why didn't he say something to the people making the comics? I mean, that seems like something that, was strong enough in his mind that he set in motion in the films, but yet he seemed very hands-off, like, yeah, go ahead and screw that up. I'll just, yeah, you can screw it up. Just screw it up all day long. I don't know. It just, to me, it seems like that would have been a quick and easy fix on his end. Like, um, you guys got weird colors going on here. What's up with that? I only use blue and green. Like, that's signature Jedi colors. You're using bad guy colors. Why? <laughs> that one has just plagued me for the longest time. Yeah, coming from the guy who, of course, doesn't tell them until later that those are the only colors he intends to use, and that, oh yeah, by the way, we're just going to give Mace Windu a purple one, not because there's an actual story reason for it, we'll make up one as we go along, but because Samuel L. Jackson wanted a freaking purple lightsaber. Um, yeah, if that's the way you make your story decisions and your decisions of what's possible in your universe, uh, I'm starting to lose a little bit of faith uh, in that so-called creative vision that has been existing for so long, supposedly. Um that moves us into issue four. Issue four is uh, action-packed in a lot of ways that the other issues have not been. We pick up where we left off. Sabulba zipping along, refusing to slow down and let the Jedi just drop off. He's trying to smack them with a wrench. At one point, they come loose, and they just wind up, uh, thanks to Depa Vilaba having basically like a grappling hook type thing, catching on to the back of the pod again and being a drag on him. So he pulls out a freaking sniper rifle looking thing to blast them off. Uh, and to his credit... Um, doesn't wind up being the one to shoot them. Aldarbido, of course, is trying to kill uh, Sebulba, and he is the one who fires a blast from a pistol that winds up, just as a lucky shot, severing the line and causing the Jedi to continue falling down until they can be caught by the other cab with the other Jedi in it. Um, uh, this sets up, of course, a confrontation where they're like, okay, there must be an inside job or something. Notice that they didn't attack us until they knew that the cameras from the pod race were right there nearby. Uh, they, the assumption is that they want to use this situation to discredit the prince and his people so that the relatively primitive society of the Lanix will wind up turning to the Red Yaro for new leadership because their government apparently was corrupt and evil. Um, it'd be like if in the United States we found out that President Obama did something and uh, impeached him and in his place put al-Qaeda into power. Doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Um, suffice to say, the plan is falling apart, so the Red Yaro feels like, and the Fib, the, the, the priest whose role in this is rarely if ever actually explained other than just, hey, they're bad guys too. Um, they are to wipe out their co-conspirator, who is the prince. The prince was in on it with them, um, it seems, or at least that's the way it sounds like. Turns out, no, he's not. It's just poorly written dialogue on the page in which we see uh, the leader of the Red Yaro talking to him. 
uh, the Radio Arnold person is talking to the Fib priest, saying, you know, uh, our this, our that, talking about the plan. But you see him basically there with the prince. The only bit of the priest you see is basically from his uh, feet up to right before his neck, and he's covered up halfway by the dialogue balloon. So it's very hard to tell who he's actually talking to. So for a second there, see that the prince was in on it? No, actually, he wasn't. This is where they say um, what we can definitely agree with. Uh, were you any other prince that might indeed have been a good plan, that is, holding someone, holding the prince for ransom? However, your people would probably ignore my demands just to make me keep you. So I might as well kill you now and be done with it. Yeah, pretty much. That's the way we feel about the prince character, too. Um, <laughs> at this point, the Jedi come crashing in to save the day, but rather than regularly just killing and disposing of the body, the Red Yara wants to go extreme and brings in some trained broken ack dogs and these big reptilian creatures to eat the prince and while they manage to save the day uh, yaddle gets a nice stab into the eye of one of the ack dogs uh, at that point uh the radiaro priest winds up getting caught uh, i like the fact that the leader or the uh, fib priest i like the fact that the leader of the radiaro uh puts on a jetpack and makes his escape and you're thinking holy crap he just managed to escape he just busts it out uh Yes, priest, tell them, you'll pardon me if I don't stick around for the tale. I'm free! Or excuse me, aha! I'm free! I'm... And then he's somehow saying, dash, dash, question mark, exclamation point, and here comes Sebulba zipping through, and he goes right into the engine of the pod racer and gets cursquished. Um, which, you know, is kind of gross. But he gets uh, splattered, basically, in... The engine, uh, which of course then you know just continues on its merry little way. Uh, the Grand take absolutely no responsibility for anything that has gone on, despite what the priest is saying, despite the priest babbling about it. Um, and basically, the first story is over. You would think that would be the end of emissaries to Malastare, but instead, Mace Windu's like, "Wait a second, these Ack dogs come from my homeworld," which he's not going to name. The name of the homeworld doesn't come up until Shatterpoint, uh, many, many years later. But these Dogs come from my homeworld, which apparently you're not allowed to expound upon. Uh, but they were apparently bought on Nar Shaddaa. If there's illegal trading of uh, Dogs going on, I must investigate it. Alone. Take the prisoners back. I'm bound for Nar Shaddaa. And it's like all of a sudden, you know, four issues... Only 66.6666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666
half-naked Twi'leks, because that's all that Twi'lek women, apparently, until Ayla Secura, appear to be good for in Star Wars. <laughs> Blue! Huh! Twi'lek! Oh, what is she good for? Stand around half-naked, I guess. Uh, but the thing that that strikes me is is okay, Poe Clune's lightsaber in the Clone Wars ended up being blue, right? He didn't get to keep a yellow one, correct? I don't believe so. Honestly, though, I'll, I didn't pay that much attention to it, or at least I I have no visual memory of that. Well, the thing that cracks me up is like, okay, every single Jedi in this council in the scene here, uh, they all light up, and everyone here, if you, if you're looking at things from the Lucas standpoint of of Jedi have green and and blue only, not one of these Jedi have the right color lightsaber. Not even Mace, who's the only one who has a blue one, because he should be having a purple one right now. Uh, <laughs> Kai's is purple. Uh, let's see, uh, Hetz, he's got the two red. Uh, Golly's got like a dark red, orange, uh, you know, Yaddle's got a, a orangish yellow one, uh, Peel, he's got like an orangish red one. And of course, you know, Clune's got the yellow one and Mace has the blue one. It's just like, wow, the colors are just so crazy here. <laughs> like, I just don't understand that disconnect from Lucas's lightsabers to the EUs. Like, here, here's a schism. Well, there's actually there's a really easy explanation for it, at least as far as uh, this series goes and this era of Star Wars goes. Um, if I remember correctly, they hadn't yet pinned down that you have to have a certain type of crystal for the lightsaber, so I think they were actually using Skittles. <laughs> nice. Taste the rainbow. Yeah. Uh, yeah Mace, Mace Windu. Shocking. There you go. They go, taste the rainbow, mother! There you go. Um... This brings us into issue six, or as I like to call it, a completely fracking different story. Uh, uh, Timothy Truman still doing the writing, and John Nato, again, someone that we know from back in the X-Wing stuff, doing the artwork. It takes us to Nar Shaddaa, where kind of an old lady is muscling in on the turf of a weird-speaking little uh, miniature crime boss, and is about to get the crap beat out of her when... Mace Windu shows up to save the day uh, during his search for trying to figure out where the act dogs came from. Uh, the day is saved again when he's about to confront a whole crap ton of baddies by Depa Balaba, who shows up. And we get a brief hint as to uh, the connection between the two about how... And, and they do this a lot. They're just dropping these little comments from the backstories of the characters into the issues as a way of saying, see, see, there is continuity. See, see, these characters do have some depth to them. Here, Depa Bilaba just happens to drop a, she's a, uh, and you know that I'm honor bound to protect you, Master Windu. When I was a baby, granted, they're in the middle of a fight. When I was but a baby, you saved my life, gave me a home, taught me the beauty of the force. While Depa Bilaba is alive, none shall harm the head of her master. And you get one of the few saving graces of this particular story arc, which is her reaching up Touching the bald head of Mace Windu and saying, the Force knows that head can use all the protection it can get. I like that. Um, I guess you could probably also, if I can make an off-color joke, use that quote uh, for a line of Star Wars condoms. Um, so, we've got uh, uh, that segment done. Not all that interesting. It turns out the old lady, the, the weird-looking old lady, uh, had a child taken away for Jedi training. I'm wondering if they're meaning this to somehow be Aura, um, but they don't really give any specifics uh, it's just she's incredibly incredibly pale white and before yeah, they I was go curious about that as well i was like did they ever tell us who that was <laughs> well they'll eventually wind up going after uh the uh or going into the underworld guided by this woman but as a way of basically saying see we're setting up some other stuff to come 
we have this scene that really feels out of place in the issue, which is that before they move off, they turn around and see a mysterious Jedi in a hood who doesn't want to initially reveal his identity to Depa and Mace. Uh, he tells him about what's going on, and uh, before he can leave, because he is planning on just walking the heck away, uh, Mace Windu flat out asks, who are you? And he pulls down his hood to reveal, I'm Quinlan Boss, Master Windu. Which, if we're a reader of this series going back and rereading it these days, will make us say, it's Quinlan! Woohoo! He's gonna show up later! It's great! It's, he's being introduced here! But if you're reading this back then, you're like, who the hell is Quinlan Boss? And why should I care? And why does he have a yellow line underneath his eyes? What's up with this guy? Um, he does say um, that uh, he was there on an investigation. It's interesting some of the stuff that he says. Um, he says... I've come here for much the same reason as yourself, seeking certain creatures that are being smuggled from Nar Shaddaa to the darkest corners of the galaxy. Uh, then Mace Windu talks about, you know, how the laws are against the transport. That's not the only law that's being transgressed, Quinlan continues. I assure you, here the unwritten rules that govern peace and dignity of every living creature are ignored. In conducting my own mission, I have learned much that could be of use to you. Which is where there he gives go, yeah. them the map down below, which, you know... Gets that whole plot point. Well, how do they know their way around? Well, because Quinlan gave them a map. Right. And then he reveals his identity. Um, and Mace says, basically, you know, you're supposed to be on Ryloth. Where's your apprentice? And he gives the hints of what's to come. My Padawan awaits me. We came here tracing a lead. Now we return to Ryloth. Okay. What I've learned could shake the Galactic Republic. May the Force be with you, my friends. May the Force be with the entire Republic setting up him and Ayla being there because they're going to come in a very, very soon arc of this series. But the scene itself feels very heavy-handed and completely disconnected in many ways to the rest of the story, especially since the guide is going to be the lady that they just saved. They didn't really need Quinlan's information if she was going to be the one providing it. It feels redundant. But they find their way to... An underground, an underground area where they are set upon by the denizens of the lower levels of Nar Shaddaa, and when it finds themselves falling towards a huge arena where the Circus Horrificus is performing for Gargon the Hut. Uh, we will find that Gargon is a little bit weird as we move into the next issue, but in this one, we find what looks like, and is later confirmed to be Malakili, the Rancor Keeper, um, still looking about the same pretty much as he looks in... Return of the Jedi, uh, even though this is many, many, many years before, um, being the one handling uh, the creatures and such, and we get what amounts to the third saving grace if the bald head thing and Quinlan's rather weird non-sequitur appearance um, are the first two, the third being a point at which uh, one of the leaders of the Cervicus Horrificus lifts up the arm of a winner. Uh, he says, uh, we proudly present the winner of today's main event, and then lifts up his arm, uh, blah, 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 the mightiest warrior of the day, and in the process of lifting up his arm, the person's been hurt enough that his arm pops off in the guy's hand. Um, at which point he just, you know, drops the hand, says, uh, too bad, I must say, because you'll be needing that arm for what's coming next, and in come act dogs to basically eat the guy. But I thought that was kind of a cool slapstick type moment that he lifts up the arm of the winner and it just goes, and it comes right off because of the injuries that he has sustained. Again, not an issue that is particularly good, but it has at least those three quick little saving graces for both this issue and for this series. 
And it had a great little panel there at the very end where the speeder bike is all engulfed with the Denzins and the Jedi of United the Lightsabers Mace is kind of flipped around and is in the process of jumping onto the back to attack the ones that are coming up. I that's just I don't know, that's one of those panels that I've seen floating around the internet a lot. I've always loved that shot. Which brings us to the last issue or the second and last of this self-contained storyline pretty much out of the six. Um and that is Deppa and Mace winding up finding themselves inside the arena, and rather than having to fight their way out, having to at least initially try to talk their way out of it. We find out that the hut that's in charge of this, Gargon, is missing half his head. Don't worry, he's a hut. It will grow back. Uh, now, I'm not big and, and up on hut anatomy here, but their brain is in their heads, right? Or not. Because if the brain's in the head, <laughs> he should be uh, of half a mind at this point. Because literally half of his head is just gone. It's not like it's been damaged and it's all scarred. It's like it's been cleaved away. And he's apparently still just fine. Um, in the crowd, again, another one of these appearances that makes us go... What the hell are we even seeing here? Who is this guy? Is Vilmar Gark, I think you're supposed to say it like that, a Vil that will become a major sidekick character for Quinlan Vos later, the Deveronian. One of my favorite characters from the series um, as it makes its way towards becoming Republic. But he's in the crowd betting on what's going on, and all of a sudden we're spending whole pages just on this guy who we've never seen before who we seem to have no connection to other than he's just a guy wanting to bet in the crowd. Um, it's just a little bit odd. We finally see uh, Mace and Deppa have to battle the act dogs until everything finally ends when uh, they manage to basically hold Gargon as, I'll say hostage isn't the right word, but basically to like grab him and hold a lightsaber to him very much like Mace uh, holding a lightsaber up in uh, that in Attack of the Clones, you know, you know, this part is over and all that. Um, you know, just kind of ending with that and a mob. The, the Jedi leave and the act dogs are just kind of eating whatever they want to eat. And the people of the crowd uh, don't like Vil, so they're just chasing him. They're, they're chasing him in the last panel. Um, we, we have Depa say, for now I'd say that this game is definitely over. You think so, friend Depa? I hope so. I truly do. And then a shot of Vil running like hell with the crowd, including Sybil, but chasing him. Um, very, very clumsily handled. Um, and I gotta say, this made such a little impression on me with Quinlan Voss at the time and Vil at the time. And the art in this is so different from the art that we get with Jan Dersima when we see most of the stories with Quinlan and Vil that I don't think even at the time when I was first reading these, that I put together that those were the characters that show up in Twilight, Darkness, etc., etc. I don't think it even registered, because this story barely registered. I mean, it was fluff. It was six months straight of meh. Following Outlander, which by itself was okay, better than this, but still not great, which by itself, after lasting six months, uh... Uh, that is one that also followed another six-month story, Prelude to Rebellion, that was meh. At this point, the series that becomes Republic is really not doing a very good job of telling Star Wars tales. It's basically doing what it can with what little it's allowed to use 
from the prequels. I've got to say at this point, if I were to grade this, we're talking a C or a D for this series at this point. A series that eventually becomes a strong A is in C or D territory. I mean, it's really, mm -hmm. really going to need some help to dig itself out of this hole. And that help will eventually come in the form of Jan Dersima and John Ostrander. But not quite yet. Right now, we're still dealing with what is basically for this series, even though they may be great talents on other things, sort of the B team when it comes to the creative team for this series, because they just can't seem to find what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, the last bit here, the things that jumped out the most to me was like when Mace jumps up behind the hut, he doesn't immediately stick his lightsaber out. The first thing he does is he chokes the hut with a cable. And I was thinking about, you know, when, when Leia chokes Jabba, you know, I mean, we always attribute that to just woman power. But now I'm starting to think, you know, maybe she was using the force on that chain and really giving him one heck of a choking out. <laughs> well, what's up with the shot that we see right around the same time? It shows uh, this hut with half a head from behind and it sure looks like we're looking into his head because there's like a there's like a pinkish purplish little wavy thing that I think we're supposed to believe is the guy's tongue seen as a cutaway into his head surely yeah. that can't be what we're supposed to see because all of his the stuff in his head should be spilling out the other side of his head that's been cut open surely that's just scar tissue that happens to look like a tongue I can't imagine the artist drawing it that way and not raising a question of um, does this make any sense to any of y'all? No, I think it does look like a tongue. I think that basically what happened is where that part of his head got tore out just became added mouth. I mean, because <laughs> from that angle, it's totally the tongue. And you can even see where the other half of his mouth kind of curves open. And it's just all missing. But I like, though, when that was addressed earlier, uh, oh, let's see, Depa said something. She's the one that mentioned half a brain. Even with half a brain gone, a hut can still function. And Window goes, yes, yes, I don't know if that speaks well of the species or ill. And that's all they say. I mean, I remember at this point, this was that whole, ooh, huts, you know, you can't kill a hut. And this was like, I, I remember when I first saw that was like, all right, you know, here's a guy missing half his head. Like, that totally changes everything I could even think of about the species. You know, whether they're male, female, how they do their breed and all that, the craziness of that how they can uh, you know, withstand blaster bolts and poison and all this other stuff. And then you're like, what kind of damage could have done this and left him alive, you know? But then, of course, Clone Wars came and Zero came and changed all about Hut's skin texture. So that, that th this character isn't as cool as he once was, you know? <laughs> yeah, all I can say is that it is very fortunate that the next arc of this series is Twilight where Ostrander and Dursima take over the series, because at this point, this really was... It, it, it's, it's like the title of when it got changed to Dark Times. It's the path to nowhere. It feels like this is just... I and mean, they might as well have called it Star Wars Cameos. And that's it. <laughs> yes. I mean, even the covers don't really capture what's going on in the story. I mean, it's definitely one that, like I said, I, I, as a collection, it doesn't really work. but as a part of the bigger series, it, it's a perfect filler episode in the regard of you get a little bit of backstory here, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And it, it, it is all very little, very little, minuscule, and has even less to do with the plot. Like, how does Sebulba end up on Nar Shadar after the other planet? Does he just decide to follow Mace or something all of a sudden? A lot of that kind of stuff. But at least there's a, those little nuances were seeded there. I'll give it that. 
I mean, I, I, I don't think I would be as, as kind, though. I don't think I could give it a C rating. I, mean, I would give it a D plus at best. Oh, man, and don't even start with the covers. Oh, my God. The first issue's cover is trying to show us a scene from inside, the scene with the dark woman and Ashura dueling, except somehow this big window is looking out into space. So is it that the room is sideways looking up at the stars, or are they supposed to be on a spaceship at this point but not in the actual issue? So that doesn't work. Uh, issue number two only shows four of the six Jedi. The other ones, I guess, were too hard to draw. And one of the ones being shown is, is one that's not even on the mission. Ethkoth isn't with them on Malastare. Uh, <laughs> and here's a, a nice picture of Mace Windu as generic black guy, not even remotely looking like himself. I'm sorry. Mace Windu on the cover of the second issue of this, what screams to me is, take off the glasses, that's Urkel all grown up. Um, <laughs> does not look like Samuel L. Jackson at all. You move to issue number three, and it is just bizarre. I don't know what's going on with Mace Windu's face in this, because it looks like they've taken his nose and the top of his mouth and combined them into one thing and given him almost like a fang or a buck tooth over the rest of his mouth. When you look at the way his face is shaped, you can't even imagine what this must look like from the front because it wouldn't look human. And you've got uh, this weird look on the face of, of Evan Peel as he's holding on to the Cibola, as to Cibola's pod racer. That in and of itself isn't too horrible. And then you've got Depa Bilaba. Look at Depa Bilaba's facial expression. Well, that's that's Adi Or Adi Gallia, excuse me. Not yeah. Bilaba. Adi Yeah, she looks like she's trying to make some kind of like weird fish face or she's engaged in an act that we can't talk about on a family show. Um, it doesn't make sense. Um, fourth one, we've got Adigalia uh, fighting against both gravity and an act dog. Yaddle jumping at it. Kiati uh, Money coming at it. It's basically um, like somehow they didn't want to show Kiati uh, Mundy's legs. I'm not sure how gravity is working. It's like the act dog is coming from the way the steps actually look that like gravity works. And unless Deba Bilab, ah, I keep saying it, unless Adigalia is falling down the steps at an almost uh, right angle, the way she is drawn there makes absolutely no sense. You jump to issue number 17, and once again, it, it's not Mace Windu as played by Samuel L. Jackson. It's a <laughs> laughing Harry Belafonte as, as Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, and then you finally get issue number 6, where we have a somewhat passable cover where at least Mace Windu looks like Mace Windu, even if Depa Balava looks like a generic Indian woman. I mean, the, the cover artwork is completely, completely carked up, to use yeah. a, a line from, gosh, what, Kvark is Ewoks. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the 16th one with, with Yaddle above the art, the act dog, and the act dog's like jumping over some fire pit that's blowing the smoke down. It's like, what in the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta love a cover that just, has nothing to do with anything, and you're just like, by the time you get to the end, you're like, what was the point of this cover? Like, what what was it supposed to sell me on? And then you look at these, and you're just like, what were they thinking at all? Like, this makes no sense. And, and that's what, what cracks me up about this era when you go back to it. It's just like, there is a definite disconnect with what we get in the prequels and what Dark Horse thought we were going to get in the prequels. And it, it's funny. It is just really funny to, to go back to. Uh, you know, it's not something that I, I would suggest, hey, you got to go back and do this. But if you're ever going to do the the Republic ride, uh, you know, it, it's a fun one. And 
I like this in the aspect of it gives you the background, some more stuff on head. I like that. You do get the quick little glimpse of Quinlan Voss, so you kind of fill in those character stories. Part of when I do my reading, though, is I like to follow character stories. So, you know, if I was going to go on a head kick, this would be something I would be reading if I was going to be leading my way down eventually into legacy and stuff like that. You know, that that's the kind of fun for me. Or if I was going to do a Voss kick, you know, go through this, get that little moment in there and kind of try to tie all those little pieces together. Uh, you know, sometimes it's it's funner to look at the individual overall stories than the entirety of the EU. And we should know here that that would be a het kick, not a hetna kick kick, because if it was a hetna kick kick, then it would be the Jawa from A New Hope and Tales from the Los Isacantino. <laughs> nice. Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we highly encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. If you haven't, go do it. If you have, do another one. We don't care. You can also find our links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. If you guys have any Star Wars and or EU questions, you want to fire off a comment about a past episode, whatever it is, just email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you, our sponsor, Audible. They have a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore. You can do the EU, you can do any other genre, but no matter what you do, you never have to worry about getting stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. That's right. Be sure also to check out the Amazon.com store that my wife and I run, Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles. That's, that's Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. I'm picking up things there from the collection that we're selling off, uh, and uh, let's just say every little bit helps as we're looking at what appears to be probably a medical bill of over $11,000 from one trip to the emergency room. Uh, yeah, every little bit uh, helps, and uh, uh, you know, at least that way you get uh, something out of it by buying something from the collection. Yeah, that's yeah. Get to helping him. Yeah, it's quite a mess. Quite a mess when you uh, when you don't have insurance and have to get a cat scan. Dude, it adds up fast, man. It, it only takes just one trip. I remember my son. Yeah, it was my son. He fell off of a, a slide and uh, whacked his chin really good. And we weren't sure if he was going to have a bunch of issues and stuff. I had to go in and have a special test done. It was just like that one trip set us back almost two years. Okay, it just it's it's mind blowing. I mean, we're we're dealing since we're both working, and we're we're dealing. But holy crap, I don't think either of us expected that much. We're hoping by the time the final bill actually arrives, it'll actually be smaller because sometimes if you if you're a self-payer as opposed to insurance, the amount actually winds up being cut. But the itemized list so far is basically a mind bender uh, at this point. So I don't know, I don't know. But every little bit helps. You know, I usually don't turn around and ask for help on anything um, uh, from the community and stuff because I feel like it's sort of supposed to be a one-way street we provide to you and not the other way around. But um, if you haven't checked out the Amazon store, maybe this is a good time to check it out just in case you find something that's abused because it would wind up um, being at least a little bit of help on 
this end, uh, but I, I digress. Well, one thing to keep in mind, Nathan does collect all sorts of rare and awesome Star Wars goodies, so there is a good shot that you might find that one limited edition something or other that there's 58 of them and Nathan's got 57 of them, so go check it out, see what he got. If there's something you like, buy it. Make yourself happy and help him at the same time. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, hoping that the next arc that we wind up reviewing of whatever series you wind up reviewing will wind up being better than these have been. <laughs> Sing. Thanks again for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that my wish will be granted. <laughs> What are the odds that they'll ever call this Star Wars Volume 1 instead of Star Wars Republic? Or that they'll uh, be forced by Lucas to produce yet another version, or I guess by Disney at this point, to produce another omnibus version of this so they can go back and manually change all the lightsaber colors. Ooh. <laughs> Retcon by design. Speaking of next week, what would you like to cover anyway? Ugh. I don't know, you think I'll be done with Into the Void by then? Oh, no, I'm not that uh, lucky. <laughs> okay. Um, what else has been up recently? Um, we could do the Ninth Assassin. Yeah, we could do Ninth Assassin. That's another piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, while, while we're on the subject, it's Star Wars comics that are complete crap. If we haven't on you enough in the last four weeks, there's a little more. Darth Vader in the lack of plot. <laughs>